The prevailing narrative across the board, uh, ideologically even, you know, it's ranging from post-colonial scholars in the academy to uh, Islamists in the modern Muslim world, uh, to even Orientalists, classical Orientalists, is that uh, Islam and modern Western secularism are at, at complete odds with one another. For me, there is no rupture, so to speak, um, uh, between the pre-modern and the modern. There is a development over time. Welcome to the Harvard Islamica podcast. I'm Mariam Kazmi. And I'm Harry Bastramajian. We're joined today by Dr. Rushan Abbasi, winner of the 2021 Awalid Bin Talal Prize for Best Dissertation in Islamic Studies for his dissertation entitled Beyond the Realm of Religion the idea of the secular in pre-modern Islam. Rushan earned his PhD from the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations at Harvard and will join Stanford University as a Mellon Postdoctoral Fellow in the Humanities and lecture in the Department of Religious Studies this fall. Congratulations and welcome, Rushan. Thank you, Harry, and thank you, Mariam, for both having me here. Yeah, thank you for joining us. So to get started, maybe you can tell us a bit about your background and how you became interested in the topic of the secular in pre-modern Islam. Sure. So I uh, did my undergraduate at the University of Maryland, and there I majored in history and, and politics. Uh, and it was towards the end of uh, my undergraduate career that I went to Jordan under the auspices of a government scholarship. So the plan was to actually work in public policy maybe get an MPP and potentially work in the government. But uh, plans, as they often do in life, changed when I met very interesting people during my time uh, in Jordan, many of whom were graduate students, um, some scholars who specialize in classical Arabic texts. And uh, after that, I couldn't get enough of Islamic intellectual history. And so... I enrolled at Harvard Divinity School where I did my master's. And at that point, I was uh, in some ways divided between two distinct fields. Uh, the first is, um, broadly speaking, anthropology, but really my interest was theoretical. And uh, that's where secularism comes in. I was very interested in the wide-ranging debates um, you, you know that we find in, uh, uh, taken up in fields as diverse as political theory, um, sociology, um, and religious studies uh, surrounding the uh, idea of what is, what is, I guess the main question being what is, what is novel about the modern world? Um, how do we uh, come to terms with some of the things that have sort of faded away um, uh, in terms of uh, identity and in terms of uh, uh, you know, the maintenance of society. Um, and uh, the on the other hand, again, going back to my experience in Jordan, is uh, the Orientalist and also the traditional study of uh, Islamic text uh, in their context. Um, and uh, it just so happened that uh, in my PhD, I ended up working during my master's, I ended up working closely with Khalil Rehab, and that's why I ended up doing my PhD with him. And uh, I was very fortunate to be able to pursue uh, such a project, which was able to kind of combine both of these interests. So that's really how I landed on this idea of the, the secular in Islam. It, it came from my own personal interest in bridging the gap, so to speak, between uh, social theory and uh, the study of pre-modern civilization uh, in the uh, discipline of history uh, and philology. So uh, what happened was during my first year in my PhD, I was uh, fresh off of reading Shahab Ahmed's uh, What is Islam? The Importance of Being Islamic. And though I found it to be a very thought-provoking and in some ways very inspiring text, I was uh, a bit uh, uh, uneasy about its claims regarding pre-modern Islamic civilization. And, and they were claims that are not entirely new. Many post-colonial authors have made them regarding uh, the absence of so-called modern categories like religion, like secular, like sacred and profane. Um, so I began this project during a seminar under Michael Cook uh, during my first year at Princeton, where I studied as an exchange scholar there. And I began to study these terms like deen and dunya. And it became very clear to me 
rather quickly was that Muslims had a very similar sort of uh, conceptual dichotomy uh, to what we now call the religious and secular. And though at that time it was a very uh, rudimentary sort of analysis in a, a class paper, um, I, 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 uh, ever since then I've been probing various fields within Islamic thought, ranging from theology to legal theory, political thought, in search for these sorts of seeds of secularity. Uh, and my aim is not to uh, simply do a conduct a historical study, but to sort of bring these concepts to bear on our own debates surrounding uh, the secular and, and religion. Great. Uh, thank you for that, uh, Rushan. Uh, you touched on this already, but if we could maybe uh, dig a little deeper on uh, sharing with our audience, what, what is the pre prevailing narrative uh, uh, regarding Islam and the secular? Uh, and why is it uh, important to correct this misconception uh, around this, this narrative? Yeah, so the prevailing narrative across the board, uh, ideologically even, you know, it's ranging from post-colonial scholars in the academy to uh, Islamists in the modern Muslim world, uh, to even Orientalists, classical Orientalists, is that uh, Islam and modern Western secularism are, are at, at complete odds with one another, um, and that uh, one uh, would be a fool to go uh, searching for some separation between religion and the non-religious realm in the pre-modern uh, is Islamic world, uh, since these are, in fact, inventions of modernity. And the main problem that I have with this sort of narrative, uh, and this is a, a, a kind of a broader point about my view of history, is that uh, it falls into, a, uh, uh, ironically enough, it falls into a certain kind of modern conceit, uh, modernity being obsessed with its novelty and, and its newness. And, and even those who are critical of the developments in modernity, for example, post-colonial scholars like Talal Asad and others who very much uh, uh, set up this binary between Islam and secularism. What's interesting is that they s kind of reinforce these ideas and uh, that, uh, you know, uh, the pre-modern world was this sacred canopy under which religion permeated all facets of life. Um, and it's only in the modern world that we get this uh, rising differentiation, this rising sort of rationalization of society. Uh, whereas for a historian of Islam like myself and many others, I think, we would really uh, disagree with that sort of assessment because the kind of uh, writing, when you look closely at these writings, the scholars are very interested in uh, elaborating conceptual distinctions and uh, creating sorts of categories surrounding religion and its relationship to the world. And so the problem for me then is uh, instead of caricaturing the pre-modern world based on uh, our own conception of the modern period, and much of this is involved, much of this is indebted to certain theoretical developments in, in Europe, um, I think uh, it would behoove us to engage with the indigenous texts of this civilization to ask whether they may uh, prove us wrong uh, in our conceit. And, and furthermore, that they may teach us something, that we can bring those ideas into conversation with the most pressing uh, debates in our in our society, which is one of one of which is what is the relationship between religion and, and politics, and and that uh, of course is an inter, uh, an important question for the Muslim world in particular. But I, my my ambition in this work is to uh, have these uh, texts and ideas speak as well to contemporary liberal political theory, uh, which is very much in crisis. So so there are broader political uh, stakes uh, in my intervention, but more particularly uh, as an academic contribution, I just, uh, my, my, my humble contribution is to undermine and try to reimagine these sorts of assumptions uh, which we have about Islam and its relationship to modernity. Great, thank you. So before we get into your dissertation, can you tell us a bit about your methodology and the scope of your dissertation? How did you decide to take a long durée approach and to look at different areas of Islamic thought, including theology, political thought, and law. Yeah, it's it's a good question. Um, the 
the simple answer would be that uh, it the, the methodology I, I I adopt is simply a reflection of my personality. I, I can't I can't simply re, uh, 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 remain content with uh, the study of one particular figure with one particular genre. Um, and so I think that's also what uh, in, uh, inspired me to take on such a wide ranging study. Um, but I think the uh, the 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 sort of question I'm asking uh, requires this uh, wide ranging and long durée approach because my emphasis is not on trying to uh, understand the secular in a particular period of time in Islamic thought in Islamic civilization or to bring to light a particular figure's understanding of uh, certain debates in Islamic uh, in the Islamic tradition. What I'm trying to do, rather, is to paint a very broad picture of the contestation surrounding the secular, um, the essential uh, nature that the uh, the essential sorts of features which emerge when one looks at this idea in, in Islamic thought. So that, of course, requires that different genres be used, and it also requires that we look in a different time periods. So, uh, just to summarize. What uh, what I do is I approach the entirety of this idea of the secular uh, in the way that David Armitage has proposed, this Harvard historian um, who, who has proposed this methodology of history in ideas. So previously in intellectual history, uh, most famously uh, pursued by Arthur Lovejoy, was this um, methodology in which one studies a singular idea. For him, it was the great chain of being. For others, it could be happiness. It could be genius. And the problem with previous studies was that you, you sort of had an essential understanding of what this idea was, and you were looking for its unraveling in different periods of time, uh, which is obviously very ahistorical. But what David Armitage is trying to do and has done with this idea of, this, of, of civil war in history is to uh, uh, adopt this idea of a serial contextualization in which one does one's best to understand the uh, the scope and the history of an idea in its context by looking at the discursive tradition in which it emerges, but also the social and political and cultural context as well. But that one is not then limited to that context, that one can move from one context to another in this sort of serial uh, um, progression. And uh, by doing so, shed a sort of distinct light on the development of ideas, but also allow those ideas to speak to our contemporary concerns. Because the fear, um, the, the very um, understandable fear with overemphasis on contextualism and historiography is that you sort of write these ideas and events and incidents away and don't have the opportunity to, to bring them into conversation with contemporary thought. Um, so by adopting this method of looking at figures over a, a broader period of time, um, you're less concerned with the question of trying to understand a particular time period better, a, a specific sort of time and space, and more with um, doing the due diligence of getting the ideas right and trying to interpret them right, but allowing them to allowing yourself to then uh, engage in a debate with the accuracy of these views, with the relevance of them to our um, own uh, concerns uh, in modern society. So that's sort of what led me to this uh, to this approach. And what I think is um, sort of novel about it is that, again, it goes back to my own uh, experience in academic development, uh, you know, starting from even my undergrad, was that I was interested in both of these sort of disciplinary worlds. And, and the only way to bridge the gap is by creating a sort of new methodology that allows one to a traverse time and space in a way that may be uncomfortable to historians, but not without sacrificing the the careful uh, philological assessment of text that that is required uh, to really understand these people on their own terms, which is essentially my my modus operandi. Right, it's to read the text on their own terms, allow these figures to speak for themselves, which is precisely what I feel many modern Islamists and theorists have 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 missed out on when they debate the relevance of the religious and secular to Islam. They don't really take into account how these figures themselves and these thinkers employed their own categories in ways we that might resemble uh, ourselves. Thank you. So I guess uh, framing framing this uh, study a little bit, you... you uh, you begin your dissertation by discussing, and I quote, the, the grammar of the dunyawi. Um, and 
how can we understand this uh, concept of the dunyawi better? And, and where do you locate its origins in the Islamic world and, and in the West? Yeah, uh, it's, it's a good question and one that is really at the heart of my entire dissertation. The first thing I'd say is, contrary to what many believe, uh, and this uh, 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 applies to both the dissenters and the defenders of secularism. Um, this, the idea of the secular was not invented ex nihilo in, in early modern Europe. Um, the idea of the secular is, is there from the very beginning of the uh, emergence of religion itself. Because once you have a concept of religion, the question naturally emerges, how does that realm of life, how does this human phenomenon of understanding the divine, how does it relate to worldly concerns? Um, how does it relate to, for example, those people who do not uh, assent to these uh, religious claims? So if we're speaking about the um, history of Christianity, the category of the secular begins uh, from the beginning of its history. And if you read the writings of uh, Tertullian and Augustine and others, they're all yeah, at the beginning of Christianity, you have the emergence of this category uh, called the, sac- the saculum or secularis being the adjectival. And what uh, thinkers like Augustine, Tertullian, and others were all grappling with was how Christians could live in uh, uh, an overwhelmingly pagan society, uh, uh, that is Roman society. And Augustine, for example, theorizes the space of saculum, which is this kind of middle uh, world in which Christians can uh, act as good citizens in the Roman polity. And uh, and really the question is, well, what is legitimate? What are the legitimate activities a Christian can engage in um, in, in Rome? And, what, um, and how are they to theorize and conceptualize what they're doing in, in society? Um, so all of these religious traditions were grappling with these sorts of uh, questions. Even the Zoroastrian tradition, for example, in in their legal tradition, they distinguish between personal sins against oneself and those against society. One really being kind of religious and associated with Daina, the early um, uh, etymology of uh, possible etymology of Deen in the Islamic tradition, and those having to do with uh, inner uh, social relations. So, putting that aside for now, in the Islamic context. I think the uh, concept of dunya and dunyawi is in many ways a counterpart to the to seculum and secularis. And by counterpart, I mean that it does much of the same work. It has this uh, sort of theological valence, right? That, uh, you know, this world is better than the next, this very common idea to the monotheisms. And it, it's also very much uh, embedded in this question of how should we navigate this world given that we now have this revelation from above, uh, from on high? So in that first chapter, I compare the, the two, the, the, the dunyawi and, and, and the seculum. And this is what leads me to the distinctiveness of Islam. The first, there, there are quite a few differences. And that's what I want to also make clear. Is not, I'm not trying to argue that Islam is the same as the Christian West. Uh, in fact, my entire dissertation is essentially arguing that Islam had its own conception of the secular uh, in light of its, uh, which was developed in light of its own theological concerns and preoccupations, um, its own distinctive history. Um, So for example, and I'll give a couple, the distinction between the laity and and the clerical class does not emerge in Islamic thought uh, with uh, such clarity and visibility. And, And that's very much intrinsic to the Christian understanding of the secular. And for example, when we look at, and this is also pursuant to that point, uh, you look, for example, at the clergy in Christianity, there's a distinction made between the the regular clergy who follow a rule, who live inside the monastery, and the secular clergy who live out in the world. And the secular clergy, uh, by virtue of their designation, are irredeemably inferior to the uh, regular clergy. And that sort of distinction does not arise among the ulama. For example, an alim who is more involved in society is thereby a distinct sort of institutional figure. And uh, these differences, in my view, uh, come back to another feature of the Islamic dunyawi. Um, The dunyawi doesn't carry this very strong normative uh, evaluation that the secular does in the Christian West. When things are described with secularists, it often means it often carries this sort of Pauline ideal of the flesh being a, a sort of temptation, temptation to the self. 
Whereas when I have every, and I've studied it for years now, I have not found a single attestation of the dunyawi in the adjectival that has has uh, conveyed this uh, sort of negative um, value uh, or has has attached to it this negative value. So for example, no one is described as dunyawi in a negative sense, whereas Augustine and many others will use the same term uh, um, with that pejorative uh, connotation. And so what I try to bring to light are these uh, differences. But what I nevertheless maintain is that the same sorts of distinctions are at work in Islamic thought. So, for example, the the secular is often associated with the universal as opposed to the religious, which is often seen as particular, having uh, to do with a specific community and thereby not necessarily translatable to other religious communities and other sorts of features uh, that we kind of associate uh, with the religious and secular today are very much, uh, you know, the, the, for example, the, the understanding of what is religious and what's secular. Although there's, you know, some important differences that I try to bring to light, you know, the idea that religion is associated with ritual, religion is associated with a, a, a founding figure and uh, a sort of uh, religious scholarly class, as opposed to a secular realm, which has to do with uh, basic human necessities, um, which arise out of, you know, the a, the the needs of uh, of of a, of a society that it has to do with the mundane with the profane much of these ideas and categorizations are very much present in uh pre-modern islamic reflections on the secular so in short there is much resemblance um but of course a very clear distinctiveness uh, which is really a continuous thread throughout my distinction uh, throughout my dissertation i was wondering if you can talk more about how you engage with the work of theorists like Bilal Asad, who you mentioned, and also Charles Taylor. In what ways do you agree or disagree with their ideas about the modern secular? Yeah, in short, I think they are exceedingly insightful when it comes to understanding the modern world. Um, and I don't propose to have any kind of specific authority in matters modern, and hence my focus on pre-modern Islam. Um, so, for example, Charles Taylor, I think, is, is uh, you know, ha- has a very incisive understanding of what has changed in the modern period. And though I might disagree with the particulars of what has changed, um, he, he, he really uh, understands quite well the challenges for uh, secularism today and the challenges it has uh, placed on religion. Um, likewise, Talal Asad has, in a very different vein, Brought attention to how secularism is in very is, is very much its own religion, and that it is entangled in in, in state uh, in the state institution, but also in uh, certain power dynamics, uh, which are of course embedded in a colonial enterprise and then exported you know throughout the world, um, whether in Egypt or in Europe, uh, in its relationship to m- the Muslim minority population. Secularism is often actively regulating religion rather than being some sort of neutral principle of neutrality. So that's where I agree with them. Where I disagree with them is in their, what I believe to be a caricature of the pre-modern world. For me, to put it uh, frankly, there is no rupture, so to speak, um, uh, between the pre-modern and the modern. There is a development over time, which is precisely why I'm, I, I said earlier that I, I locate the origins of the secular back to you know, really back to the um, Israelites uh, uh, during the Exodus, but developed further under the Christians, under the Zoroastrians and the Muslims. And that this, the same sorts of debates are, the same, similar sorts of questions are being put forth, that uh, they are also, they're all engaged in this question of the relationship between religion and politics in, in a very sophisticated way. Now, what has changed is the relationship between these domains. What has changed for, and one of the major changes is that secularism now is very much involved in a sort of anti-clericalism and oppositional stance towards religion. Whereas in Islamic thought and uh, much of pre-modern Christian thought, um, the secular was not seen to be opposed to the religious, but rather as distinct to religion. That is to say that religion does not apply to everything. Religious discourse is not relevant to all matters of life. And, And in that sense, I have a fundamental disagreement about their view, of their understanding of history and about how we would best approach the, the, the question of the secular and its, uh, re, I suppose, redemptive status in the modern world, 
specifically in the Muslim world, um, but also within within the West. Uh, for me, I think much of them. I think for someone like Talala, said, there's a lot of there's this inclination to throw the baby out with the bathwater, and for me, that's not the best way forward. And that's why I'm trying to reconstitute an alternative conception of, of the secular uh, from, a, from a radically different worldview. Great. Thank you. So in chapter two, you discuss the quote-unquote worldliness of Islam. What do you mean by this phrase, and how do you believe that the Islamic tradition's historic attitude towards the material world compared with that of the Christian tradition? Yeah, so this goes back to something I was mentioning earlier with respect to chapter one, which is that I could not find a single attestation of the Dunyawi and pre-modern Islamic texts that carried a similar uh, negative and, and pejorative connotation that it, the secularist does in uh, pre-modern Christian tracts. And uh, what, I, what I argue is that this has to do with the distinctive worldliness of Islam. And, and what's interesting is so the worldliness of Islam is a claim that many uh, modern people have, have held on to and uh, sort of elaborated for their own polemical purposes. So Nietzsche, for example, talks about the worldliness of Islam uh, and uses it as uh, uh, to wage a critique against Christianity and, and many other enlight uh, Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment thinkers who found Christianity to be a very weak, sort of, you know, anti-bodily, uh, 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 anti-social um, uh, religion. Um, Rousseau also sees the vigor in in, in uh, Islam, and, and others find it to be its weakest uh, 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 attribute. For example, Voltaire, Voltaire and others. Uh, modern Islamists have also kind of cashed in on the distinctive worldliness of Islam. So what I, I try to do in this chapter is to assess the claim of whether or not Islam is distinctly worldly in comparison to Christianity. And what I found through a study of early Islamic uh, attitudes towards labor, uh, working in the market, um, and um, the accumulation of wealth, um, early ad, uh, Islamic attitudes towards sexuality even, and then uh, more broadly to the political realm, is that Islamic theology, in my view, or the kind of uh, the rise of Islam is, in my view, a, 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 radical, a radically revolutionary uh, development in religious thought within late antiquity, insofar as where in um, Greek uh, classical Greek thought and and in Christian Hellenically influenced Christianity, the contemplative life is always seen as uh, above the the active life. And for the Greeks, that meant the philosophical life. But for the Christians, that meant the spiritual life. That that is precisely why the the regular clergy within the monastery are superior because they've foregone the material world and are devoted solely to God. Nothing of that sort emerges in, uh, in I think, in, in early Islam and in medieval Islamic history. Of course, Sufism is there, mysticism is there, um, and I, have, I, I try to deal with all of the sources that are secondary literature that argues for the importance of Sufism. But what I, what I, I try to demonstrate is that even, or, or despite the con con continuities of, uh, you know, sort of monastic, uh, inclinations and religious thought, there is this overwhelming tendency, tendency against retreat from the world. And even when one does retreat from the world, there is uh, a sort of need to defend oneself or to say that one is going to come back. And, and even if we put that aside, there is no particular, uh, uh, I mean, to put it uh, uh, simply, the religious and the worldly are not necessarily at odds with one another. And the greatest example being sexuality. Um, you know, the, the the Prophet Muhammad has multiple wives, and many of the the companions are kind of divorcing and remarrying. Uh, Ab initio, really. I mean, they're really just having sex all over the place, and it's all over the literature. It's, I mean, in all the pietistic literature, it emerges it almost. You know, if a Christian were to read it, they would have a sort of visceral reaction to it. Um, uh, Zayev Magan in his book Virtues of the Flesh has a really great chapter on um, uh, this kind of orientation towards the bodily and, and the, the sexual and so why I have this chapter in the dissertation is because in my view um, this sort of theological outlook very much informs how Muslims deal with the worldly realm which is to say that for them they are equally Grab, they are equally concerned about the question of, okay, where do we draw the lines of the authority of religion? 
Um, so, for example, where's the prophetic prophet's authority? Uh, where are the boundaries of the prophet's authority or the the jurist's authority? Um, they're equally grappling, and we'll get to this. You know, the question of you know what is the nature of science and how does it relate to the religious sciences? These are kind of practical questions which emerge. And they are interested in creating conceptual distinctions because they're sophisticated thinkers and categorizing as part of the natural, I mean, it's part of what one does as a scholar. But they are not uh, opposing religion to, to the development of the world in and of itself. Uh, on the contrary, they actually link the two. So there are very, there are very many phrases um, to the effect that you know, religion will not succeed without the world first succeeding, that one has to develop the world further, or one has to, for example, take care of one's worldly needs, and then they can flourish in their religion. Uh, and just to give one a quick example, you know, right when the uh, Caliph Abu Bakr was uh, elected to his position, he throws this cloth around his neck and walks into the market the day after. And they they kind of, they, they ask him, well, what are you doing? You need to be concerned with these, you know, communal affairs. And he eventually gives in and says, okay, they apportion a, 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 some portion of the wealth of the community for him. But it's just this very symbolic thing that even the leader of the Muslim community, what one might call the Pope, and he has, you know, the early caliphs have been called the Pope in so far as they held temporal and spiritual authority. He goes right to the market the next day. He is not seen as sort of retreating from society. Um, so that's what I mean by the, the worldliness of Islam. And, and it is one of the... I suppose one of the unique contributions I'm trying to make in my dissertation, because uh, it is, it, I believe, paradigmatic of the alternative conception of secularity I'm trying to outline. Because, as I mentioned, in Christ Christianity and, and the modern secular is, in essence, uh, a Christian secular, right? It is indebted to these uh, centuries and a millennia long debate within the Christian tradition. Um, and to move outside of that, I believe one has to understand that the Islamic conception of secularity uh, was, uh, you know, began on a very different uh, footing and, and thus was uh, elaborated in quite uh, different ways than and had a very distinct history uh, as opposed to uh, Christianity. Before we move on, do you mind just clarifying how the concept of dunyawi doesn't appear as negative in the sources that you looked at? Just because in the context of the sawuf, for example, it does have a negative connotation, right? Very often. Yeah. So um, when the so the the term dunya itself um, has many meanings. Um, Ghazali, for example, in one of his works, uh, talks about the homonymous nature of dunya. That the dunya uh, and and this I mean this honestly is uh, endemic to all religious traditions, right? There's something a little bit wrong with the world that you have to kind of figure out your way in it, right? Um, uh, and so. Ghazali and obviously so many thinkers wrote these books about um, dunya, the censuring of this of the world, right? That there's something wrong with it. So my claim is not that Islam is unique in, under, in not developing this discourse around the vices and the delusion, the illusory nature of the world. I mean, the Quran is full of this. Um, um, you know, what is this world except the enjoyment of a delusion? Um, so I, in my first chapter, I, 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 I you know, do my due diligence and I, I give credence to that sort of um, view of the world. What I meant is that the adjectival dunyawi, whenever it's been used, has been detached from that negative uh, connotation of dunya. And this is where the second understanding of dunya Ghazali talks about comes in. That's dunya as the means uh, by which one... Uh, I mean, first of all, it is the necessary requirement that one has to engage in by virtue of being a human being. But and from a religious perspective, it is a means by which one attains to God, which is to say that in rejecting it, one is rejecting what God has uh, uh, sort of ordained for um, humanity. Um, and it's that neutral understanding of dunya as a means to an end or uh, beyond just a means to an end as uh, a a project of a religious project in and of itself, which is to say, one has to uh, develop the world. One has to, for example, um, cultivate the lands. One has to build cities. This was the conception of the dunya held by many other authors. And whenever the dunyawi has been used, it's been attached to that sense. Um, and that's what dis what's distinctive from the secularis, which was never 
used, I mean, it was used at times in a neutral sense, but it overwhelmingly carried that negative connotation. And I believe that has to do uh, overwhelmingly with the sort of otherworldliness of of Christian pietistic ideals, whereas Islamic pietistic ideals are are not in in a sort of uh, stark uh, opposition to the world. Uh, so that's that's exactly what I mean. It's a sort of subtle point. Okay, thank you for that clarification. So moving along, um, how did pre-modern Muslims think about the Prophet's authority in secular matters? Yeah, so this is uh, chapter three of my dissertation. And uh, I'll start with a disclaimer. For many pre-modern Muslims, uh, the uh, the distinction between the religious and secular would not have been relevant to the prophet. So, for example, mystics who had a sort of overblown conception of the prophet as essentially uh, a kind of you know this sort of cosmological cosmic figure, a, a Muhammadan light, for example, or you know those who believe that saints kind of meet in a council and and regulate the world's activities those sorts of people wouldn't have understood a religious secular distinction with respect to the prophet so what i did in that chapter is i focused on one specific tradition which was the sunni tradition and what the sunni tradition in my view overwhelmingly concedes is that the prophet muhammad did not have any special authority in matters secular and that his his identity or his uh, prophethood qua prof, his his being a prophet was um, attached to his function of uh, conveying the message tablighah and this is the precise wording they used and the uh, sort of the locus classicus in the islamic tradition which is which i found used throughout you know eight centuries of texts um, dozens and dozens of times is this a uh, report uh, in which the prophet uh, runs into uh, a, a dozen or so Medinan farmers and they're cross-pollinating date palm trees. And he tells them that it might be better if they don't do that. Um, and of course, he, he being the prophet, they listen to him. And uh, obviously the crop fails because you know these agriculturists knew what they were doing when they were cross-pollinating. So they come to him in fury and ask, well, why did you give us this piece of advice? And in response... He, he says, you know better your worldly affairs. When it comes to matters of the divine, you come to me. Or when it comes to matters of religion, in some reports, you come to me. But as it pertains to worldly affairs, you know them best. Antum a'lam bi amr dunyakum. Now, this is in and of itself a very important hadith. But what really struck me is that this essentially became the paradigmatic hadith for Sunni scholars. And I'm saying, you know, maybe you know, more than 100 Sunni scholars for whom this uh, hadith clearly attested uh, or clearly established that the prophet conceded authority in worldly matters. And now the question was uh, to his community. And the question was, well, what exactly was this worldly authority? Well, other incidents, uh, well, other incidents help uh, elucidate that. First of all, the Medinan farmer incident tells us that, well, when it comes to, uh, you know, one might, one might call the natural sciences, what one might designate as, you know, empirical observation and the art of agriculture, the art of um, learning through observation, it seems the prophet doesn't have any special authority. Um, in another incident, um, he's uh, he decides to broker a treaty with the uh, enemies uh, uh, of when he's in Medina with the enemies of the Muslims. Um, and before he does so, he asks uh, two of the leaders in Medina, his companions, well, what do you think about this? And they say, well, is this your decision is this from God or is this just your own opinion? Right? He says it's from me. And uh, on that uh, occasion, they rejected what the prophet's counsel was, and they went against it. And this is an important, you know, kind of uh, precedent because it allows for certain political or military decisions to take place, uh, not on the basis of religion, but on the basis of experience, on the basis of um, uh, considerations of statecraft and uh, and other such things. And so what I did in that chapter is uh, I look at, you know, discussions of prophetic medicine, right? Is the prophet really have an authority in matters of medicine when he is not really a specialist in medicine? Or um, in legal theory, does the, uh, the prophet have a specific, uh, how, how, what is the scope of his 
religious uh, legislatory capacity. Uh, another is, for example, in the uh, discussions of prophetic infallibility, Isma. So Sunnis and many other uh, Muslim sects, for example, the Shia, believe in infallibility that prophets are perfect. And that, of course, applies to the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. But if you look at all of these incidents in which he seems to err in his decision making or in his assessment of a situation, uh, or seems to promote uh, or establish or, or commit himself to the false understanding of a thing, how do we understand that in terms of infallibility? So someone like Qadi Iyad, who is the uh, you know, bestseller of prophetic biography in, in the pre-modern world, he says, well, there are his uh, dini actions which and his dini statements, Akbar Dunyawiya, which are which must remain infallible, that he cannot err in. But when it comes to his, to his dunyawi statements, his dunyawi actions, he can, of course, be uh, contravened by whatever is uh, the truth, um, because that is not his function as a prophet. Uh, and what what really uh, what was fascinating about this uh, these sorts of uh, discussions is that they're all doing different things. They're not simply rehearsing what the previous figure said. There's, there are debates around the the... the the precise details about where is the scope lie, what sort of evidence was must one uh, use, and also um, it's all it's used for so many different sorts of questions. It has to do with medicine, it has to do with politics, it has to do with law. Um, so, in, in short, they had a very circumscribed view of prophetic authority as it pertained um, to uh, the secular realm. Yeah, uh, sort of t- uh, drawing on that. Um... Uh, especially uh, thinking about the specific um, types of knowledge, right? Uh, scientific knowledge, uh, the Hellenic intellectual tradition. Uh, how did pre-modern Muslim uh, uh, thinkers classify these types of knowledge, whether it be it religious or secular? Yeah, no, it's a great follow-up question because it is intimately tied to the, the question of prophetic authority as well, um, since it has to do with, in essence, circumscribing the prophet's knowledge. So what I discovered is that a, a spectrum emerged uh, regarding uh, the relationship between the religious and the secular sciences. So what I would uh, what I would categor- characterize as a minority view in the Islamic tradition is that there is no difference between religious and secular knowledge. A- and people who would have promoted that view would also believe, like some modern uh, modern Muslims, it's very popular actually in the modern Muslim world, the idea that the Quran, for example, um, has knowledge of all things, uh, even scientific. Um, this was, I believe, a, a minority view, but not one that's non-existent in the, the pre-modern world. So for some people, there is no difference uh, to, be, to be made. But putting that aside, those thinkers who were deeply uh, concerned with the question of how to understand the relationship between, uh, and this is really from the 10th, 9th and 10th century forward, the relationship between the Hellenic heritage, which has very distinct you know, premises, which is the legacy of a pagan civilization, and the very sophisticated religious sciences, which are you know, called Arabo-Islamic sciences for a reason. They, they sort of emerge indigenously from um, the Islamic uh, uh, community. Um, what is the relationship between these two sciences? Because they're studied alongside one another, literally in a single space. And, and all scholars, uh, or more often than not, scholars are masters of both sciences. Um, so what I've found is that a distinction between them, between these sorts of sciences, was there from the very beginning. Now, they were called different things. So for example, uh, early on, the uh, Hellenic sciences are referred to as the Ulum al-Awail, these sort of kind of ancient sciences. Um, that and that was a sort of kind of geographic distinction, or in some cases a chronological distinction. That these are ancient, and then the Islamic sciences are modern, or they're they're called Ajami and Arabi, being foreign, and those being indigenous to the Arab world. But later it becomes epistemological, and that uh, emerges first with philosophers. And what becomes a kind of paradigmatic dichotomy in the uh, Islamic uh, tradition is that between the Aqli and the Shari'i sciences or Naqli sciences. So the term Sharia becomes associated with religious sciences and the term Aqli for rational, uh, in some cases, Ghayr Shari'i actually, become associated with the non-religious sciences. And and really it comes down to a sort of epistemological distinction. So for Ghazali, for example, uh, in his Ihya talks about, you know, he, and it's from his very first book on the Book of Knowledge. He's making an epistemological distinction that 
um, religious knowledge is uh, based in revelation. And whereas the Ghair Shari'i sciences are, uh, have no direct connection to revelation, they are the product of you know, empirical observation or the product of you know, um, universal truths that are discovered through, by, by way of rational means. And what other authors like Ibn Hazm and Ibn Abd al-Bar, uh, going into the early modern period, they all, uh, in essence, adopt this sort of epistemological classification, but they debate the nature of that, uh, the, of this relationship. So, and it all has to do with their own inclination. So to give one quick example, you know, where a religious secular distinction did not make itself extremely present in this sort of classification of sciences is among philosophical thinkers, which seems counterintuitive. But in fact, if one understands precisely what the philosophers committed themselves to in, in pre-modern Islam, it would become uh, very um, apparent why they did that. So the philosophers believe in this sort of kind of cosmological hierarchy. So in essence, every sort of pursuit of knowledge has to be connected to the other. Uh, in uh, insofar as they all um, emerge from the same source, and the the religious uh, their religious understanding of you know Islam is very much embedded in their cosmological philosophical understanding. So they were not very happy with this sort of kind of distinction, and that's precisely where the religious scholars uh, diverge with them. For them, it was even more important to make this distinction because if you do not make the distinction between this sort of Hellenic and Arab Islamic heritage, and you sort of mingle the two together, as the Brethren of Purity did, as Ibn Sina did, and others, uh, you fall into the trap of inheriting and smuggling in all of these beliefs from that pagan heritage, which Ghazali and others try to very clearly reject. So, to, uh, so in other words, math is good. Physics, some, some part of physics is good. But Aristotelian metaphysics is nonsensical, and it totally goes against the Quran. So that's precisely why they were uh, vehement in their uh, 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 um, attempt to establish these boundaries between these two sorts of heritage, between the religious and the uh, secular sciences. And, you know, they all were doing this to different degrees. Uh, You know, what is exactly a sort of kind of secular science or not is much debated. Um, But this is the kind of essential contestation. Uh, it really comes down to this dual heritage and it comes down to, well, where do we draw the line so that one can engage with it uh, without sacrificing their own uh, metaphysical commitments? It's widely believed that Islam does not separate church and state. To what extent did you find that this was actually the case in pre-modern Islamic political thought? Yeah, um, in some ways, this is a million dollar question and I don't have an easy answer to it. But I, I do try to tackle it from one perspective in chapter five. And what I set out to do in, in that chapter is to, to first show that Muslims, in fact, associated politics and governance with a, a sort of secularity, um, a non-religiosity. And by that, I mean, for example, long before early modern Christian and late medieval Christian figures had sort of dissociated piety from politics, uh, Muslims had done so. Um, so for example, uh, Ghazali's teacher, Joani, in um, talking about what is the uh, what are the kind of attributes which are required um, for the imam to possess, he, he elevates competency and, and sort of uh, tosses out piety. And this, of course, is in light of historical events, which is what Ira Lapidus calls the secularization of, you know, Islamic political life, where these nominally Muslim rulers take over as opposed to caliphs who are uh, kind of embedded in a kind of Islamic religious um, world. And so uh, many other uh, authors uh, came to this understanding, especially in the Mirror for Princes literature, that what is not required for good, effective governance is good faith or um, correct faith, or uh, um, pious behavior. In fact, when they did talk about the utility of religion, it was in a functionalist sense, uh, almost a Machiavellian, Hobbesian uh, way of uh, understanding religion as a civic religion. So, and this is, of course, a, a hallmark of secularism, right? That religion becomes sort of objectified and used as, you know, politically to uh, m- to uh, gain the uh, ascent of the populace or to work, for example, as a social, group, a social glue 
by which the polis may be uh, maintained. Um, and that's precisely how they approached religion. It wasn't from this confessional normative perspective, but from this analytical, in some ways, um, objective uh, perspective. And so I try to bring that to life, uh, to light um, in that chapter. Um, but the question of church and state, right? The separation of church and state is very much uh, a novelty of secularism insofar as it was uh, kind of the essence of what secularism was calling for. And, and still, in many ways, secularists will uh, adhere back to that essential principle that church and state must be separate. In Islamic thought, uh, such a view does not emerge in any sort of kind of meaningful uh, way by any mainstream thinkers. And that's for the sheer fact that all pre-modern religious traditions, and not simply Islam, it's not distinctive Islam, committed themselves to the sort of, especially in the late antique Near East, to the marriage of religion um, and kingship. Um, they all knew very well that the, the masses are an exceedingly religious kind of people, and that if one wants to maintain their rule, they have to regulate their religion, fight off heresies, which are in essence, you know, ideological threats. They're, it's sort of treason to the, to, the, to the king's polity. So this is just kind of par for the course uh, when it comes to sacral, sacred conceptions of kingship. The Zoroastrians, in fact, the Muslims inherited this distinct understanding of the marriage of church and state from the Zoroastrians, uh, famous from the uh, Sasanians, uh, famously during the translation movement and, and earlier, they're translating these Iranian texts, the Ahad Ardashir, the Testament of Ardashir and others, the uh, Book of Kings and so forth, all of which are infused by this idea that religion and politics or religion and kingship are brothers and must be maintained so. So in some ways, I am arguing that the, 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 the marriage of church is not, in fact, distinctive to the Islamic tradition. In some ways, it was some, in some ways, it was a remnant of a broader late antique Near Eastern um, under political theology. Um, and that isn't to say that Islam does not, in some ways, lend itself to that. I do think that one must grapple or try to understand the, um, the in, inclination to or, or I, in fact, the obligation to establish Islam as the sort of supreme religion. There are traditions which which say that. And uh, many of these political texts will talk about the preservation of religion, hifd al-din. So how does one do that? In my view, they, this is an open debate. And they, in fact, had different views about this. For some people, it simply meant that, you know, you have the Friday prayers. For other people, it meant a sort of preservation of uh, morals in society. But what exactly that meant is highly debated. For example, in a religiously pluralistic society where other communities have different conceptions of what is, you know, moral. So for example, so Zoroastrians were allowed to have incestuous marriages, right? There's no public policy that's trying to uh, create a sort of monolithic society. So I think in many, and, and in that sense, secularism is an is less tolerant than uh, uh, Islam was. Um, so I, I try to sort of bring these questions to light, to, to not give a definitive answer to whether church and state did, not, did or did not exist, but to uh, look at it from a different perspective, historicize it, and then try to ask whether or not, you know, secularity is relevant to Islamic political thought, which I, I, I absolutely believe it is. Thank you. How did pre-modern Muslim scholars distinguish between the religious and the secular in the realm of Islamic law? In, I'll speak about it in a few ways. So the first, uh, and this is in keeping with the theme of the rest of the dissertation, um, Islamic lawyers, Islamic jurists used this distinction between dini and dunyawi to understand specific aspects of the law. So, uh, for example, following from the circumscription of prophetic authority, when the prophet says, you know better your worldly affairs, M Muslim jurists in the Sunni and the Zaydi schools overwhelmingly applied that principle to this very important Islamic doctrine, uh, ijma, juristic consensus. Um, consensus being this idea that um, the, the community of jurists have agreed on a specific doctrine or a specific principle or a specific opinion, and that becomes, uh, thereby it becomes normative within the Islamic tradition, um, canonical even. Well, they asked the question, does this apply only to religious affairs or secular affairs, using the term dini and dunyawi? And um, just, uh, in spite of a few minor opinions, Sunni and Zaidi scholars said, well, pursuant to the idea that the Prophet didn't have any 
authority within the secular realm. Juristic, jurists who are the inheritor, the heirs to the prophet, also do not have that authority. And then they also elaborated, well, what specifically does that mean? For some, it meant rural and urban development. It meant military strategy. So many different things uh, they would use. Um, and another example, this is a more kind of mundane feature of court procedure. When it came to religious, uh, when it came to the role of the witness in the court, which is, you know, an essential role in the Islamic uh, courts, they asked the question of whether or not hostility is the basis for uh, tossing out a witness from the court. And the same thing we kind of asked today, right? Are there some inherent biases the witness might have, which may uh, make him or her an unreliable witness? So they asked, well, they asked, well, we have to first distinguish between religious and secular hostility. Because religious hostility, they argued, is okay. And, and they had to argue that because Muslims, in essence, are hostile towards other religions because they believe them to be you know, infidels, right? They kind of assumed that to be the case. And in pre-modern Muslim courts, only Muslims were allowed to be witnesses. So if you outright uh, banned you know, religious hostility from pre- being present in uh, witnesses, then you wouldn't have any witnesses anymore. So they had to make this clear distinction between religious and Secular hostility. So then they define, well, what is secular hostility? It's when, uh, you know, someone has a dispute over someone over property. It's when, you know, essentially it's, you know, toward. It's about um, having to do with um, social relations. So in that realm as well, you find that these categories made sense to them. And that's really what I'm trying to uh, to argue that the, in the same way that it might make sense to us, it made sense to them. Now, they might have come to different conclusions, right? In this case, it led to some form of religious discrimination, which might not sit well with us. But that's a matter of what one believes to be true and how one uh, answers these questions, but not the, the the distinctions themselves. And even when it comes to, you know, the understanding of ritual and and uh, distinction between sort of worldly and otherworldly aspects of the law, this this comes to the fore. And, and, and one final uh, important aspect of it, which I think applies to the question of you know how the secular, how did the secular um, uh, pertain to their kind of uh, or bear on their conceptualization of the Sharia as a whole? The best one of the best examples for me is this: a question of well, what do, does Islamic law apply to non-Muslims? You know, very quickly the Islamic state became an imperial state, and it had to adjudicate the affairs of uh, minority religions. And essentially, they uh, they continued the heritage. In some ways, the heritage of the um, Sasanians in allowing, a, uh, at least theoretically, a sort of judicial autonomy or legal autonomy for these minority communities, and they explicitly said that Jews and Christians could write to could follow their own rulings. So, for example, you know, uh, Christians were allowed to eat pork and and drink wine. They were even allowed to possess and exchange wine, whereas that's of course allowed not allowed for for Muslims. So they had to ask the question: Well, to what extent does Islamic law apply to them? Right. And what they conjured up was this distinction, which in some ways was already there in Sasanian law, in some ways already there in Roman law, between the kind of secular aspects of law and the religious aspects of law. And essentially what they, the conclusion they came to is that religious communities are allowed to regulate themselves when it comes to you know, marriage, when it comes to inheritance, when it comes to re- ritual and religious personal status law. Essentially the same thing you find in colonial India when the British come. They say that Muslims can follow themselves, you know, can regulate themselves when it comes to personal status law. But when it comes to civil affairs, the uh, the colony will rule. And the same conclusion was uh, arrived at by the Muslims. They said when it comes to, they use the exact term mu'amalat and or ahkam ad-dunya. So if it comes to, you know, murder, if it comes to property, that's where Islamic law does apply. And in essence, I believe they were conceiving of Islam as sort of, you know, a, a legal system that inha- that had sort of multiple dimensions, one of which is religious, another of which is, you know, imperial or more relatable to the secular. And, and one kind of vivid example of this is that they th- in their books, they essentially write that non-Muslims and Muslims are equal. This egalitarian principle is very uh, explicit that they're equal when it comes to possession of property, when it comes to commercial matters, they are on equal footing. Um, And this is pretty striking because Muslims and non-Muslims are not equal when it comes to religion, of course. Uh, And I already made the give the example of witnessing, right? Only Muslims were allowed to witness because they essentially believe that non-Muslims did not have the moral probity to kind of be honest witnesses. So religious discrimination or religious inequality was sort of natural when it came to 
religious um, elements of life. But when it came to the secular realm, they essentially created this public sphere in which non-Muslims and Muslims could meet each other on equal footing because it was recognized that there are specific aspects of human interaction, specific aspects of the law uh, in which uh, that sort of exceed confessional boundaries. And that is a, a really important aspect of the, the secularity uh, of pre-modern Islamic law. And, and I try to bring more examples of this to the fore uh, in, the, uh, in the final chapter, uh, but I'll just end with that. Yeah. Thank you, Rushan, for taking us through this uh, uh, very interesting uh, journey through your, uh, uh, your dissertation and your research. To sort of wrap us up here, uh, thinking about the, the contribution your, uh, your dissertation makes to the field of Islamic studies, what is it that you hope other scholars, uh, other students of, of Islamic history, Islamic civilization, take away from, from your research? And to sort of take that to the next level, and uh, uh, you know, what do you hope to sort of uh, gain from this research uh, moving forward in your future, uh, your future work? Yeah, um, I, I hope it makes um, a distinct set of contributions at, at different levels. So methodologically, I hope this kind of study will open up the way for you know future scholars, um, younger scholars who are emerging in the academy now, to you know be be sort of courageous enough to not kind of be limited by disciplinary boundaries, by uh, kind of methodological boundaries inherent to the kind of historian historian's craft, which you know, doesn't allow one to engage um, in theory or, or engage questions of theory, of social theory, questions of political theory in, in a sort of rigorous and sophisticated way through an engagement with the past. So rather than parceling out the past and kind of leaving it in the history books and then debating questions of contemporary concern simply through engagement with modern thinkers, whether Foucault, Nietzsche, or, you know, Judith Butler, whoever else, that, well, thinkers like Sarakhsi, the Islamic legal thinker, uh, Hanafi jurist, um, Ghazali, Ibn Taymiyyah, in the Christian tradition as well, um, in the Jewish tradition, uh, Maimonides, uh, uh, um, so many others, they have something to offer us in terms of our own, uh, or, or I suppose, uh, sort of create, uh, casting a new light on the questions which, which we grapple with today and, and allowing us to uh, resolve or at least find new ways out of the out of our current crises by thinking about the past in imaginative ways. So methodologically, I hope it'll make that contribution that one doesn't have to sacrifice um, doing good history uh, to make oneself relevant. And, and and following from that last point, I do hope that there is a, um, a substantive contribution in in the debate and discourse around secularism today. And I think the academically what I hope, and, and I suppose also in some ways confessionally in the sense that I hope it, uh, people will listen to it, you know, in the Muslim world, um, but also in, in the West in its understanding of Islam and even in its understanding of secularism. So in, in essence, uh, uh, this sort of kind of public oriented way, I, I want to bring a more positive uh, and constructive um, uh, uh, approach or I want to offer a kind of more constructive approach to the crisis of secularism today. Um, for, you know, we talked about it earlier with the kind of post-colonial thread, um, even modern Islamist thread, there is this, um, uh, there's the ascendancy of the Islam secularism incommensurability paradigm. And, and in that sense, Islam is kind of caricatured and, and you're kind of left with nothing at, by the end. You know, secularism destroys everything. And Islam is uh, is is not in any way uh, can it not in any way be brought into conversation with it, and that leads you leaves you kind of nowhere. And again, that applies whether in you know the public sphere in the West or in the Muslim world. And, and what I want to offer uh, um, is a new way of thinking about things. It, it's not it's not to do away with the with the important criticisms of modernity and the important criticisms uh, criticisms of secularism. But it's to say, okay, that's that's all nice and fine, and it's an important contribution in and of itself. But let's try to do something that I think will allow people, you know, to address contemporary concerns in a way that doesn't leave them sort of pessimistic about the future. And, and in that sense, you know, what I think I've offered is 
allowing Islamic thought to be a a, a rigorous and a an important concert conversation partner with um, the modern Western kind of secular um, political worldview, and to allow us then to think about well, you know, the future can in many ways be uh, one that doesn't simply simply throw, as I mentioned earlier, throw out the baby with the bathwater, which is to say that you know the principle of neutrality that secularism offers that you know its embeddedness in religious pluralism religious equality that that actually does have something uh, to offer us uh, and is something that must be redeemed um and that in fact muslims themselves were in many ways developing similar sorts of um ideas and and in perhaps ways that will allow us to uh, or perhaps in ways that will not fall into the same traps that modern secularism has, right? Like in the way that Talal Asad and others have brought attention to, that it is it is less it is far more transparent, for example, about its dealings with religion, whereas secularism is is far less transparent. It it often regulates religion without saying it does so. It often brings to bear a certain theological Christian conception of religion on society in its interaction with non-Muslims. Uh, sorry, with Muslims, with non-Christian uh, religious populations. Um, whereas with Islam, it was far more explicit. So I think that more constructive element is is really what I want people to um, you know, be able to, to understand and imbibe in their own work, hopefully. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Rashan. I, I really appreciate you all giving me the platform to speak about my dissertation. And, um, and, and thank you for, you know, to the committee as well. Uh, for awarding me this uh, very prestigious prize. I'm very grateful. That was our interview with Rashan Abbasi, winner of the 2021 Alwadid bin Talal Prize for Best Dissertation in Islamic Studies. You can follow him on Twitter at Abbasi Rashan. We hope you'll subscribe to the Harvard Islamica podcast and join us for future episodes. I'm Mariam Kazmi. Thanks for listening.